Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. In this episode, we head to Dookie, the University of Melbourne's regional campus in the northeast of Victoria. The winery at Dookie dates back to 1896, and the traditional custodians of the land are the Yorta Yorta peoples, and to the south of the campus, the Tuonwaring peoples. We speak to academics and animal breeders about how their research is changing the future of farming, improving not just our impact on the environment, but also producing richer and better produce, higher yields and more sustainable farming practices. We took a road trip on a very special day for the campus. It's Dookie Day, the agricultural campus's open day where prospective students and locals can come and see all the exciting research and developments that take place there. There's an opportunity to taste the farm's produce from meat to merlot, beef to beer, and those super trendy microgreens that are all the rage. Hear that sizzling? It's not your average sausage sizzle or barbecue. It's a steak taste test, sizzling for science. Our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath, meets with a scientist who's trying to uncover the chemistry behind a seriously juicy steak. I'm Professor Robin Warner and I'm a meat scientist at Melbourne University in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. Very passionate about meat and meat biochemistry and meat structure. We started some very new research on dry ageing of meat. So dry ageing of beef is really taking off around the world and it's being used in all the premium restaurants and um, butcher shops and it gets easily double the price per kilogram of um, what we call wet aged meat. So dry, age, so dry aging is a really old process, which is the old way we used to age meat. So instead of wet aging, which we now call it in science and some of the industries, when you put the meat into a vacuum bag and you have the, you know, it's bathed in the fluids and you get a lovely increase in flavour and tenderness. So what dry aging is, instead of putting it into a vacuum bag, you actually leave it to hang and you um, actually let the surface dry out to stop the bacteria growing and you have controlled temperature and humidity, low temperature and controlled humidity to dry out the surface. Then you allow the enzymes in the meat to really work to develop the flavour and tenderness. So I was told when we started the research, everyone said, you won't get any difference between dry ageing and wet ageing. Why are you doing the research? So I said, because I want to do it. I think we will. So we um, dry aged product, dry or wet aged it for five weeks or eight weeks. So, wow, you're out to find the ultimate steak and you've been comparing dry ageing with wet ageing. So what has the consumer told you last time you ran this sort of blind taste test between bits of steak? Sure, well, I basically said they really much preferred the um, flavour and especially the tenderness and flavour of the dry aged beef compared to wet aged beef. So that's the beef story. And that really dry aged beef is taking off around the world. You go to any premium restaurant they'll have, usually have dry aged beef and even uh, like a pub in Ireland that I went to had dry aged beef but now we're starting our research on dry aged sheep meat so here what we're trying to do is value add to mutton carcasses so there's a wonderful wonderful um, guy in um, West South Australia sorry uh, who's actually dry aging first he's feeding the um, sheep um, salt bush and then he's dry aging it and there's a restaurant in Melbourne that we've been to Hereford Beef Style and also one in Adelaide and so we actually have some of his product here to taste test 
And so this research is just starting. So we've gone into his restaurant and tried this. It's a mutton product, which normally you'd say was not very high value. So the producers are pretty excited to value add to mutton. Right, a so chance you're, to you're make doing it. mutton dressed as lamb. Exactly. Yes, we are. <laughs> so take me through wet ageing and dry ageing, because I don't know what goes on behind the butcher's shop. Sure. So take us through that. So normally with um, meat, what you do is you... So Mike come into the butcher's shop as a carcass... And they'll maybe hang it for one or two weeks. And you'll get some increase in tenderisation. Um, that's not dry ageing, although the butcher might tell you it is. But usually what happens around the world is it goes, um, gets boned out and put into a bag. And the, it's a vacuum bag and there's a vacuum drawn in the bag. And it sits in this bag for um, two, three, four, five weeks before it's... And it gets this increase in tenderness and flavour because there's these natural enzymes in the meat called proteases, that break the meat down and get the great flavour and tenderness. So with dry ageing, basically you have the same enzymes there, but there's something about the dry ageing process that you get a premium flavour. Don't know why yet. We think some of our data says that you actually get more of these compounds that give you the lovely browning on the surface when you cook meat. They're called pyrazines. So that might be one of the reasons. Um, it might also be to do with um, maybe the wet-aged meat has a lower pH. So we're still trying to understand why it's better in flavour, and we're doing some more research on that. So with the sheep meat, we'll actually um, get some really great sheep meat and dry and wet-age it and feed it, eat it for, give it to consumers, sorry, for up to eight weeks. And every week we'll do some consumption. Try to work out when's the, when's the um, what's called the sweet spot. When is it really premium for flavour and texture? So that work's just starting. Robin, what misconceptions do people have about meat? I have read in the newspaper that the um, people think if you hold meat for a period, it's not fresh anymore. So what they don't understand is it's really important to hold meat for a period to allow this natural, lovely natural process to occur to get the premium product. So you want to check that it's actually, say to your butcher, has it been aged for at least one or two weeks? So sometimes the consumer thinks fresh is best and they want it freshest from when it's been processed. But in fact, that's not the case. You really want these enzymes. It's a little bit like um, when you mature cheese. So I liken dry aging a little bit to the process when you're doing a beautiful dry cured ham. So I think the same, these natural enzymes in the meat, apart from the ones we know called calpanes, the other ones called cathepsins are doing a great job. That I think they're the ones that are increasing the flavour because they do, they're often investigated and really important for dry cured ham. In your research career, what surprised you? What's really captured your imagination that you thought, wow, this is amazing? I must say this dry aged sheep meat has really captured my interest and trying, really trying to understand why it is a better product chemically. Because then if we know, um, if we know the why we can then maybe help the wet-aged product to be better. And so make sure that the consumer gets a great product um, every time you know, they buy meat. That's really what our aim is, to make sure they always get good quality product. So the other topic that really, really intrigues me at the moment is work on what I'd call smart packaging. And in this work, which we would like to start, um, and we're trying to find people to help us fund it, is to look at... Rather than using having used-by dates on products, we'd have temperature sensing on the package. And the temperature sensing would tell you the use-by date. So it's actually an actual use-by date rather than an estimated. Because really the main thing that um, changes shelf life 
in terms of microbiology and colour and eating quality is all around temperature and control, keeping the temperature very low. So temperature abuse is really bad for any food, especially meat. So that's pretty exciting if we can get that going. And also I think um, we're trying to protect our great products we make in Australia in the overseas market. So uh, we'd like to put that temperature sensing together with maybe some anti-counterfeit, anti-tamper-proof packaging as well. Um, That's probably what's really rocking my boat at the moment, to try to get funding to work in that area. Now, Robin, how did you get into this area? This is unusual, isn't it, to say, hi, I'm a steak scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I fell into it. I was told at university only really bright people did research and I didn't have really high marks and it was very hard to get a job in research. So I wasn't aiming to get a job in research, but there was no female dairy extension officers in Victoria. So I wanted to be the first female dairy extension officer in Victoria. What's your advice for girls out there at the moment thinking hmm kind of really interested in the biochemistry of food or biochemistry of crops what's your advice it's about having the if you have a passion for something that's what will take you forward same in a phd same in anything that is professor robin warner or as dr andy likes to call her the steak scientist Now, we've heard of the University of Melbourne students' award-winning Shiraz here at Dookie, and we've gone to investigate further with Dookie's viticulture and winemaking expert. Chris Barnes is my name, and I'm the winemaker here at uh, the Dookie College Winery, as well as lecturer in wine technology and viticulture in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. <laughs> Got a few projects on the go. Tell me about them. Uh, yes, well, our I guess what we do up here at Dookie is two things. One is the teaching and learning that's involved with a number of wine subjects, uh, which we run at the various sort of I guess uh, enterprises we have here. Uh, one of that is here where we are in the winery, and one of the subjects uh, that involves students going from the vineyard on a Monday morning harvesting grapes taking the grapes into here in the winery, processing, fermenting, pressing, the whole gamut of winemaking until on the Friday of the same week, the wine that they've made goes into barrel, which eventually goes into bottle that becomes that vintage and is named after my dog, Bertie. (laughs) That's one of the sniffer dogs. We just met Bertie. Yeah, he's my dog. Everyone thinks he's somebody else's, but he's actually multi-talented. He's not only a winery dog, but he's also a trained sniffer dog. Now, tell us about that. Oh, the sniffer dogs? Yeah. Well, the sniffer dogs is a project that has been, uh, was in our faculty, driven a great deal by my colleague Sonia Needs, um, who's worked in scent dogs, as they're known generically, for many years. But the projects that she's working on, the one we've sort of really focused on now, is where we can use dogs to detect at obviously below human threshold, that's the key thing about their ability, uh, a wine fault. And the fault is centred around a spoilage yeast. In wine, there's good yeast, which to get a little bit technical is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but there's also a bad yeast, which is called Britannomyces, and that leads to spoilage in wine in barrels. Now, if we can detect it early on, we can remedy it, usually with sulphur dioxide, maybe with some acid adjustment and so on. But the problem is, by the time we, as winemakers, as humans, can detect it in the wine, it's usually too far gone. So if we can get dogs to come into the winery, sit in front of a barrel in the morning, and I go, oh, 
I better do not a sample because I can't smell it, but I send it away to a lab to be analysed and then I can say, oh, quick, get on top of it faster. Most people train their dogs to find their keys, but you've managed to get this dog to sniff out a problem in your wine. I wish you could find my keys. <laughs> the only other thing you can find is bacon sandwiches. <laughs> but... Bertie is a Labrador, by the way. Oh, yes, I should. Yes, of course, this is radio. And if you, if you saw Bertie, he's a black Labrador, and uh, his, his hobby really is bacon, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Actually, I know a few people like that too, <laughs> myself included. <laughs> Chris, let's talk about your wine. You've got a oh. barrel here. Can I tap on it? Yes. Is it? What's the test if, you, if I'm knocking on a barrel? Well, it doesn't sound hollow, so it's full. Okay, you know, it does um, sound full. Yeah, and uh, this is an oak barrel. Uh, most people sort of are familiar with wine barrels. It's a very old part of winemaking, you know, many centuries old. Uh, but what I've got in here is maturing the Shiraz that we harvested with the students. Uh, in 2017 vintage. Now that means the picking, which up here at Dookie, and it varies from region to region, but up here at Dookie it's about the last week of Feb into the first week of March, depending on the year. And so I've got a number of these barrels and I've also got wine that's in stainless steel tanks as well. So I have a combination of the whole thing and this is maturing and the different barrels, there's French barrels and American barrels and there's some older barrels and newer barrels. So all of them give different texture and flavour to the wine and eventually when I blend it all together it'll hopefully have more complexity and therefore be a better wine. Chris is this one of these steel barrels? Uh, that's what we call a tank and stainless steel and the importance about being stainless steel it means we can clean it so it can certainly never be the vector for microbiological spoilage and they can be all sorts of sizes that one there is only 400 litres the one behind you there is 3,000 um, that's uh, 8 to 10,000 we have outside 10,000s but these tanks exactly the same design as you're seeing here can get up to a million litres in capacity They've got a poster here yes. and it says the making of a gold medal wine and this is students who've done this wine subject have made a gold medal Shiraz. Yeah. Okay, what makes a gold medal Shiraz? Well, what, uh, first of all, a great, great fruit. We got very good grapes in 2016, which is this year. So this is the wine that was harvested in March of this year. And uh, so that comes from a vineyard very, very close to college, literally three k's away. So you could walk there in 20 minutes. And uh, the, the students harvested the grapes by hand, uh, so bought that in and then went right through the winemaking process and I decided that the wine was good enough to enter into a wine show and it won a gold medal, which means a gold medal is, gets a certain number of points, but to put that into perspective, it puts it in about the top 5 to 6% of wines. So do the students get to drink the wine afterwards? Oh, afterwards, yes. What we do, obviously the wine, when they leave here after their residential school, it's in barrel. So it's not ready for drinking. But then the way we work that is that the students who come back to do the same subjects 12 months later bottle on behalf of their colleagues. So therefore, 12 months later, we're still in touch with the students and we say... Here's your wine, and part of it is we let them have six bottles each um, for themselves, family, friends, and so on, and they can purchase a little bit more if they want to after that. So it means that they can then come back. And also their involvement, while they're not face-to-face -face with us, is designing the label. 
So the label that goes on there is a collaborative arrangement between us to make sure it's got all the legal requirements and has the appropriate acknowledgement to the university and all these sorts of things. But the actual label itself, the look and the feel of it is designed by the students. I hate to say, but we do judge a book by its cover sometimes. Yeah. So what's your favourite label so far? Well, my favourite label has been the one with the beautiful profile of Bertie the dog, which was just him. But then you see, I'm terribly biased about Bertie. The one this year has a picture of the winery with Bertie running past. Uh, but it's also got on the back label a very cute photograph, which, look, the technology's beyond me, but the way you can turn a photograph into what looks like a watercolour painting. And it's a picture that I had no idea what he was taking. One of the students took it of me walking through the vineyard with Bertie trailing on behind me. So that's, that's my favourite. What's one of the biggest misconceptions about wine that you encounter in the public? Look, it's interesting. I think one of the basic misconceptions is when people who know about wine or describing wine, they'll talk about, for example, this wine has flavours of raspberries and plums and cherries, to use the red wine example, and people then say to me, well, how many punnets of raspberries did you put in this? Or... How, how many boxes of cherries, you know, to get that, you know, no, it all comes from grapes. So I think that's a really basic misconception is that wine by law, I mean, and also by tradition, the whole thing for many, many centuries is 100% grapes. So all these extraordinary flavours and textures we get in wine are all grapes. So I think that's a really simple one. All right, a curly question for you. Wine, an art or a science? Wine is halfway between art and science. Uh, look, there's a lot of craft in it, in the old-fashioned sort of idea that you've got to understand and, and build up, a, I guess, a body of knowledge with the grapes you're working with, where you're working in the sense of the place, the terroir, in other words, the exigencies within your winery and then let the two things develop together to make something of really high quality. So I think it's more about craftsmanship. You know, you're making a thing of beauty, but at the same time, it's got to be, it's, it's got to be sound, it's got to be structural, you know, it's got to have a useful nature to it. So I'd put it more in the sense of not being what an artist does in terms of creating a beautiful painting or a sculpture, but perhaps what a craftsman done in terms of a beautiful chair that is a thing of beauty, but you've still got to be able to sit on it and use it. As a wine scientist, what's been the most surprising bit of science that you've encountered in your wine research? Oh, I think in our research, the, the complexity of flavour is extraordinary and also how we as human beings and the research that we're doing actually respond to flavour and what people refer to as taste, but taste and flavour are different, subconsciously. So people will have likes and dislikes. And when you're doing research about trying to establish whether people, they tick the box about whether they think this flavour's strong or medium and low, and this old-fashioned sort of research into flavour and structure and quality, that actually if you look at the biometrics of people, so you look at what their face is doing, you look at the heat and signature from whether they're flushing, you look at their eyes, how they're actually doing that is extraordinary. So it's the subconscious reaction that you have to whether you like it, don't like it in simplistic sense, or even something as to whether you think, for example, the flavours of plum or, or dark berry are stronger or less or so on. So that's been extraordinary. OK, Chris, just can you give us a tip? When you're in the bottle shop and you've got 
brain fog. Yeah. Where do you go? Look, I think really that you want to be looking at producers that are reasonably large. Smaller, tiny producers have the problem that I mentioned before about being linked so inherently to the vineyard. So you can have variations from year to year. Now that can be marvellous variation. Also being small, they're going to have a higher overhead. So in terms of value for money, you know, I would be saying in the $15 to $20 bracket, look for a larger producer. And in terms of reliability, in Australia, if you like reds, the most reliable grape variety is Shiraz. And if you like whites, the most reliable grape variety is Riesling. So, and they will both be the best value for money for all the reasons I mentioned in terms of volume and so on. And they're the great two white and red grape varieties of Australia. Next time someone looks at a wine bottle or pours a glass of wine, as a wine scientist, what would you like them to think or understand? First and foremost, that it's an agricultural product, that it's not something that's created out of thin air to sort of appear on a wine merchant's shelf or a list, that it actually is hard work in farming and all the exigencies of farming that people understand when they think about the crop of the wheat crop or the fruit crop when they think about a you know a cyclone in Queensland or what have you or a flood we have the same problems and unless we've got that quality that turns up here at the winery door then we can't make good wine so it's effectively agriculture and then on top of that what we do is really just take that and try and preserve, perhaps enhance and add a bit of complexity to those flavours that are there that's grown in that place in the vineyard. Chris Barnes, winemaking expert at Dookie, with all the great bottle shop hacks. So, now you know. Dookie has a brewery too, and a beer expert and biochemist, Dr Charles Padgel, who's chatting here with Claudia Hooper. So Andy's just been interviewing the wine man. Now, you're the beer guy. Is there a bit of a rivalry between the two drinks? Uh, well, Chris actually did some uh, uh, lecturing on the, the beer subject, on the history of beer. Uh, he found a, a, a quote that he's very keen on and, and, and will repeat it at any opportunity, which is that uh, wine is considered for, wine for culture and beer is for barbarians. Um, the sort of difference in the north... European and the Southern Europeans. Um, so we're very keen on that, beer, beer for barbarians. And so I'm assuming your students aren't barbarians. What do they do when they're studying beer? Um, so we have two subjects, uh, two Brett subjects. The first Brett subject, they learn about uh, the ingredients that go into beer, uh, the processes that are involved, uh, the different styles that are produced, uh, how those styles arose. So there's a lot of political and social history as well uh, involved as well as science. Uh, agricultural uh, production uh, and food processing. Uh, In the second subject, they get an opportunity to come up to Dookie and in the old winery here, um, they'll make a small batch of beer. So we give them a list of the ingredients. They decide what sort of beer they want to make, how they're going to make it. So they'll do the calculations, come up with a recipe. Um, They actually brew it, bottle it, and then we take it back to Parkville uh, and uh, about four weeks later they'll go through and they'll uh, judge each other's efforts and so they'll, they'll mark each, uh, each of their beers. So how do you mark a beer? Uh, so there's a number of things you look at. So there's the appearance of the beer. What does the head look like? Is it clear? Uh, is it the right colour? Um, then there's the aroma. Does it smell right? Um, does it smell nice? Are there any obvious uh, off flavours, uh, off aromas? Uh, the taste itself... 
Uh, and then the overall impression as well. Do you think it's actually any good? And how did you get into doing this kind of work? So my background is a biochemist. My undergraduate degree was in biological sciences uh, and we studied biochemistry, microbiology, uh, mycology. And the one thing that we all wanted a subject uh, on was brewing. But in the university at the time uh, where I was uh, doing my undergraduate degree, there was no such subject. Um, so the proposal came from uh, the, the university to start a brewing subject and so um, because I have an interest and I've, I've brewed at home for a long time uh, I was more than happy to put my hand up uh, to, to coordinate these two subjects. Do you get any students coming back to you saying I've started my own microbrewery this is where I'm off to now? Uh, this is the first year we've run the subject but even in that time we've had students who've gone to work as brand ambassadors for breweries doing uh, casual work and um, I've heard about one student now who's been offered a, a job in a brewery down in Melbourne to get some work experience. When he moves up to Wagga next year, he's been offered a, a job in a brewery in Wagga. Uh, and having done these subjects has been a, a great benefit. So without the subjects, he wouldn't have been offered that, that job. So there are students already, even after the first year, going into the industry. Can you tell me about any of the misconceptions around beer brewing? Is it, is it easy? What are some of the things that can go wrong? <laughs> Uh, a lot of people don't understand what goes into beer, um, so there's not a lot of people un uh, know about hops and the different types of hops and what they, uh, what they give to the finished beer. Uh, and the fact that most beers are produced with just simply four simple uh, ingredients, uh, malt, yeast, water and hops, um, but it's the, the, how you uh, mix those ingredients together that produces the vast range of beers that are available from lagers uh, to porters and stouts um, so it's really a, a quite a revelation to the students that they can produce all these different types of beers from just four simple ingredients can you tell me a little bit more about how you get those differences between say a lager and a stout a pale so uh, a major determinant of the uh, the finished product is the type of malt that you use so um, all beers will need a very pale malt because they have the enzymatic activity that you need to convert the starch into sugar um, but the darker Beers obviously have a lot more of the dark malts, the heavily roasted malts. Um, they also, uh, differences in the type of hops that you use, there's a great range of hops uh, nowadays um, and that's been a big uh, growth in the hop industry, particularly in Victoria and Tasmania. Um, so the different uh, aromas and the different flavours of the hops uh, and how you combine those and what amounts and in what ratios will determine largely what the, the finished product is like. Earlier you mentioned some of the um, interesting areas around the history of beer and the politics. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, aspect. Beer has been produced for thousands of years um, and the different styles have largely risen as a result of a mixture of political and social history. So in Germany, for example, you have the Reinheitsgebot, the Bavarian Purity Law, which uh, established... Uh, certain methods of brewing that were allowed and other methods were prohibited um, monastic brewing brewing in uh, monasteries in Belgium and Germany has also influenced the development of styles in those countries and things like uh, random chance events so a, hyb a hybridization between two yeasts produced um, a very distinct separate uh, yeast species called Saccharomyces pastorianus and that's the lager yeast and that produces a very distinct lager style obviously. Lots of people love to debate about which countries produce the best beer. Do you have any insights into that? The UK. <laughs> Done. Be Easy. Being English, it's the UK.
isn't it warm? <laughs> it's not warm and it's not flat. In fact, that's one of the, the preconceptions that I have to try and convince the students of in, in the first subject is that beer from England isn't warm and flat. It's actually very flavourful. Okay, I have to ask the question, is it an art or is it a science? From my point of view, it's a science. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you heard the man, beer is science. I couldn't agree more. Dr Charles Padgel there. So far we've heard about the chemical processes involved in creating flavour in our favourite foods, but what can new technology offer to improve agricultural practices? I'm Graham Brodie and I'm an electrical engineer based here at the agricultural campus at Dookie and I've developed a microwave system to kill weeds which are resistant to herbicides. Because weeds are taking over the planet and also they're in the way of crops and they're becoming resistant. When I think about microwaving weeds, I sort of think of my home microwave, uh, kind of like an Ikea hack put onto my lawnmower as I microwave plants, but it's not quite that. It uses the same idea as your microwave oven, but it's on an industrial scale. So I've set it up in a trailer. It's got industrial microwave generators, which are water-cooled, much more efficient. They funnel the energy and project it down onto the ground using a horn antenna and that actually then heats the plants, heats the soil and that's what kills the weeds and the seeds. Now what do you actually microwave? Do you microwave the soil before you plant your crops to get rid of the weeds or can you microwave your crops whilst they're there? Uh, We can do both. So we can actually do a pre-treatment and microwave the soil, kill off the seed bank, kill off some pathogens, plant into that as soon as it's cooled or we can actually go down between the interrow and kill the weeds which have emerged in the crop and not affect the crop. This is a brilliant idea, zapping the weeds with high temperatures because microwaves work by heating up the water inside things and sort of shaking them to a point where they boil. Yep, that's exactly right. So when we treat the weeds, we create little steam explosions inside the plants and that's what actually kills them. This is brilliant. How did this idea come about? Uh, It's twofold. I've had a long history with doing microwave engineering uh, and when I first joined the university I was working with a group in the forestry department who were actually microwaving timber to actually create steam explosions so they could dry it faster and impregnate it better. And so you just took it one step further as applying it to soils and weeds? Uh, The microwave in timber was something that we were working on in a large group and it was coming to an end and I was looking for my next project. And so I thought, well, I know that there's problems with herbicide resistance. I know that this technology works on things which are made of you know, plant material. And so I just applied it to weeds. Are weeds taking over the planet? Uh, yes and no. I mean, a weed is a plant that's just in the wrong place. So where they're meant to be, that's where they should be. But they're not always where they're meant to be. Uh, in terms of competition with crops, it's a big issue, though because the weed competes with the crop for nutrient, it competes with the crop for sunlight, all of those things. We face a couple of important issues into the future and one of them is food security. So actually being able to grow more for less is incredibly important in our modern world. What has surprised you about this research? Probably a couple of interesting things that have happened is uh, when we actually planted crops into the treated soil, I was surprised at how well they went. I can remember telling one of my students who was helping with with that part of the project, if we're not causing damage to these crops, I'll be really happy. But in fact, what we found was that we got twice the actual yield. 
So Micro's actually super boosted it because it didn't have to compete with all the weeds and things maybe. Yep, that's exactly right. So weeds, pathogens, all the problems in the soil, it seemed to actually control many of those. Dr Graham Brody with his excellent idea, microwaving weeds and the soil to increase crop yields. That's technology for the ground, but what about technology in the air? Specifically, drones. So my name is Siegfried Fuentes, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Uh, in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. I saw you playing with drones earlier. What do you do with drones? Well, basically, um, the drone technology can be applied for many different um, aspects in agriculture um, and animal science as well. So we are trying to do uh, a lot of um, uh, research on how to use drones to improve or increase efficiencies uh, in um, agricultural production. So from viewing the crops from above gives you more information about how hydrated they are, how healthy they are and what their needs are, is that right? Yeah, uh, it will give you information or raw data. So actually what we say is that uh, the drone technology is really easy to acquire the data but how to interpret that data into meaningful information for the growers, that is a a different story. So that is uh, for example companies uh, when the, all this dr- uh, drone boom started, like 2015 was the year of the drone. And uh, there were many companies that they were um, offering services, engineering companies, that they say, oh, yeah, we can fly drones, we can get, obtain the data, easy. But how to interpret the data and to give good recommendations to growers is a way different story. And uh, they promised too much. So last year, 2016, 350 companies, uh, they went bankrupt just in America because uh, they were prom- promising too much to people. Ah, we can increase your yield, we can increase your uh, water productivity, we can um, manage your pests and diseases. That was BS, basically, <laughs> because they didn't have the algorithms. We were working on the algorithms now, and we are developing those algorithms now. So m- many other universities are doing the same, and we are applying ma- machine learning so they can, uh, they can learn from the data that we've been acquiring through the years. So the data is as good as your good information, but we need the algorithms to interpret yeah. what's going on with the various crops. What sort of crops have you been testing? So we've been doing uh, on peach, peach farms, apples. Uh, we've done it in uh, grapevines, olive trees, um, uh, pecan nuts, uh, many different crops, not only here in Australia. Uh, we work in close collaborations with Europe, um, Chile, uh, South Africa, China. China, we are doing a lot of collaborations at the moment because they don't have any problems flying drones. So you know that here in Australia, we have a lot of regulations. So actually, it's, one, it's the second biggest country in regulations about drone technology. The first one is America, uh, USA. Uh, in China, you can fly anywhere, anytime. They don't care. <laughs> so uh, for us to do research there is like uh, heaven. Um, and then we can come back with the models that we develop in China. We can come back to Australia and try to see if they work and then tweak it. What surprised you so far in the research? Uh, the, the quick adoption uh, of the technology or the lack of quick adoption uh, of that technology. So agriculture is one of the lowest um, rate adoption uh, in, te- in new technologies, basically. And um, it's not only here in Australia, it's uh, all around the world. But uh, there is a reason for that. So technology, is inc- um, the cost is decreasing more and more. So growers, they don't want to invest that much money. For example, 
three years ago, a drone with all the cameras cost like $50,000. Now you can get it for $5,000. So, and that is in three years. So then the, the growers, they were right. So if I invest in this, maybe in three years it's going to be obsolete. Would it be fair to say that this is actually of national interest to future food security to maximise our crops? Well, actually, uh, that is a priority, I think, at the moment. Not only here in Australia, but around the world. It's uh, how to maximise not quantity of the data, but quantity of the, uh, the products or food. It's the quality of the food. So you can decrease the, the yield, but increase the uh, quality of that uh, yield in the in sense of uh, nutritional value, etc. Because uh, according to climate change predictions, we need to produce um, double amount of food by 2050 because we're going to be 9.7 billion people around. So we need to produce double amount of food in half of the arable land because uh, soil is one of the resources that is not renewable and we're losing soil. Um, they are eroding, they are maluse of um, fertilizer, overuse of irrigation, so salinization is a big story here in Australia. So there is a lot of uh, soils here in Australia that are saline, and it's not because they're naturally saline, so it's uh, abuse of irrigation for 100 years. So, and then um, uh, that's, those are really big problems. So how to solve them uh, is implementation of technology and how to increase not only yield, but the quality of the produces that you're... Um, I used to not be that optimistic, like uh, two years ago. Because I work, um, I, I teach climate change effects on agriculture, uh, food security, and stuff like that. Uh, I wasn't optimistic at that point, but uh, with all the technology that is increasing and all the applications of digital technology, I think uh, we have a chance. Um, and the other alternatives that we are using is uh, we're researching a lot in microgreens. So microgreens are basically sprouts of uh, different, like, uh, for example, tomato plants or lettuce, any plant. Uh, so then you have seeds, and in 10 days you have a microgreen. So what we've been finding is that uh, microgreens, if you have the same biomass of a full-grown um, lettuce, the microgreens have more, more nutritional value than a full-grown lettuce that it will take you, like, weeks to produce. So then in 10 days you can have a production to do, uh, for example, shakes or um, uh, salads. Uh, so we are researching a lot in that, in that area as well. Sigfredo, how did you get into this area? What ignited your imagination in the area of agricultural science? I'm Chilean uh, originally and uh, I grew in the regions in Chile that is uh, wine-making regions. So they're all, the, uh, all the viticultural area are there. So they're exporting 70% of the wine from there. So it's really difficult to not go ar- going around wine. And I remember my grandfather used to give me like a pieces of bread um, dipped in, wa- in red wine when I was like four years old. Uh, so then you get the, the taste for it. So then uh, I went to agriculture because of viticulture and winemaking. And then, uh, obviously, so, and that is part of food science, so I went to food science. And then applying engineering principles, I went to all the technology part. So my background is engineering, but in agriculture. And then with the same cameras, basically, we're do, uh, doing biometrics on humans to detect how you like a product without asking you any questions. So we can detect if you are happy, sad, disgusted, etc. So that is the booth that is in the sensory uh, area. And then in animals, you can do the same and how detect stress levels of animals and related to the quality of the produces that you are doing, meat, milk, etc. So yes, and, and that in the integration part is really uh, attractive. 
at the moment, basically. Yeah. Dr. Sigfredo Fuentes, making sense of the data we can get from drones. It's been quite the long day here at Dookie, but before we head back, we need to see the other residents of the farm, the sheep. We go for a stroll through the serene grounds and down through the trees to the sheep's pen. How are you going? I'm Andy. Hi, Andy. And you are? Murray McKenzie. Murray, great. Can we interview you about sheep? I guess so. Okay. <laughs> right. I'm Murray McKenzie. Um, I'm the chairman of the uh, this Dookie North East Sire Evaluation Site. Um, I'm a merino breeder at Benalla and um, been involved here at uh, Dookie for the past 18 years running trials here. I'm going to be a real city slicker and ask the really dumb question, but how come they all kind of like stand together like in a huddle <laughs> and are they happy? Yeah, of course they're happy. Um, they're in a huddle because we've put them in a pen, but um, and we've kept them in a huddle. But sheep are very, uh, um, they like to be in mobs themselves. They don't like being being out on their own. They get stressed and so they're much more comfortable when they're together like they are. And how come, like, some of them are looking at me? <laughs> uh, it, it's probably all to do with noise and various things that are happening around. So they may not necessarily be looking at you, but in movement, anything makes them makes them look cool. Right. Do you think my hat's disturbing them? No, I don't think so. <laughs> my hat has actually got sequins on it that glitter. Can you tell different sheep just by looking at them? Yeah, you can. You can if you're spending a lot of time with them. Uh, being a stud breeder, we have rams in the shed for shows and sales and things like that. And... And once you, because we feed them night and morning, so you see them, we don't intimately handle them every day, but we walk in the shed, feed them and, and see them every day. And they all end up with personality. Some get really, really quiet and they'll come up and want you to pat them. And even though we haven't made them pets, um, so just like humans, everyone's got a different personality. I've, I had, I've had some in this, we just had my ram sale only last week. And... Um, some of those rams have been in this shed for six months, and there's one in particular, like, he was, you would never, ever calm him. Like, he's still as wild as he was when he first came in. So he's a nervous Nelly. Yeah. And yet others have quietened down, and they're really quiet, and you've got to kick them out of your road. But, um, yeah, so it's just like anything. Everyone's got a different personality. That one's really looking at me again. I get a bit unnerved by the sort of even domesticated animals looking at me. <laughs> That's Murray McKenzie talking sheep with Dr Andy. It's a fond goodbye to Dookie. What a great open day it has been. Now for the long drive home, but it is a lovely drive. Thanks to all our guests, Professor Robin Warner, Chris Barnes, Dr Charles Padgel, Dr Graham Brody, Dr Sigfredo Fuentes and Murray McKenzie. And thanks to our reporters, Dr Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper. Thanks also to Stuart Winthrop from the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on October 18, 2017. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production by Dr Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper. Check out the rest of the amazing content on the Pursuit website. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, drop us a little review. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. 
Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.